Welcome to Naturally Well, a podcast to help you live a healthier and happier life with a Nordic twist. I'm your host, Kate Turner, registered dietitian, personal trainer, Nordic Naturals nutrition specialist, and owner of Live Well with Kate. Today's guest is Dr. Lise Auschler. Dr. Auschler is a professor of clinical medicine at the University of Arizona, where she's the associate director of the Fellowship in Integrative Medicine at the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine. She received her undergraduate degree from Brown University and completed her naturopathic medical training at Bastyr University, where she also completed her residency in general naturopathic medicine. She is board certified in naturopathic oncology. She is the co-author of Definitive Guide to Cancer, now in its third edition, and the Definitive Guide to Thriving After Cancer. In this episode, Dr. Auschler teaches us habits we can build into our everyday lives to activate our immune system and build resilience to stress, which is the key to avoiding negative stress-related outcomes. With immunity top of mind heading into the winter months and stress reduction at the forefront every single day, this episode will help you add habits into your routine that will keep you feeling good both mentally and physically all year long. So I'd love for you to start off with just telling our listeners a little bit more about your journey and what drew you, one, to health in general, and then also to becoming a naturopath. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think um, for me, I've always, since I was very little, wanted to be a medical provider. And I thought I wanted to be a conventional doctor. But as I gained experiences into that kind of medicine, I realized that although I value it very much, it wasn't really how I saw myself as practicing. And um, that, you know, that biomedical model, as we call it, of conventional medicine was a little bit too confined for me. And fortunately, I discovered naturopathic medicine, which resonates with me quite deeply in that it acknowledges and appreciates the science underlying health and disease and really forms that use the science to um, inform all the treatments that we provide, but at the same time recognizes the importance of the innate vitality of each person, the um, recognition that the job of a practitioner is really to teach and to support a person's ability to heal as well as they can. So, you know, for me, it took kind of the science, which I love, and Put it into this really beautiful relationship-based, um, very respectful um, understanding and acknowledgement of the capacity that we each have to bring ourselves to a better state of health. So I uh, embrace the principles of naturopathic medicine, and there are others, but I'm just kind of highlighting a few that really resonated with me and uh, went forward. And I absolutely love my work as an naturopathic provider and educator in integrative medicine because I can speak to all of that, you know, speak to the mind, body, spirit component of health. I love that. And I, I love, I think the biggest component is that you said you're an educator, like you're there to educate your patients, right? Mm-hmm. It's not, and to teach them. I mean, that's something I know as a dietitian, I'm like, I will never give you a meal plan. And the reason being is you're not, that's, you're not going to learn. You're not going to learn how to eat. You're not going to understand the why. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's so much power in that because that's really what, and I'm sure you've seen it. That's what brings about behavior change is, Mm -hmm. you know, your patients understanding why they're doing something. So then when they're put in a tough position, 
of maybe not wanting to uh, meet that goal or perform that habit, having that little piece of why really helps push that behavior change. For sure. Yeah. I think that I would agree with you a hundred percent. And I think the more we understand why, and the more we understand how, the better we are at navigating difficult choices. And, you know, to be fair, we're all making choices every day. Sometimes our choices are good. Sometimes they're not so good, but if we can make informed choices, then I think we have more agency in our lives, more ability to direct our life in a way that's pointed towards health and gives our vital essence a chance to to blossom. So yeah, hundred percent agree. Love that. I love that. Our, our, our chance to blossom too. Um, okay. So let's get into it. Um, we're going to talk, uh, you know, mainly about immunity and kind of all the components in how you really think the best way is to build resilience to and really activate our immune system. I know there's mm-hmm. so many facets to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but what would you say are your top ways to really help build that resiliency and just keep our immune system functioning at its best? And I would say optimally, to be honest, mm-hmm. um, and keeping us healthy because it's connected to so many other systems. Yeah, for sure. Well, let me first start by uh, describing a bit of an analogy. So the immune, you know, some people say, oh gosh, I just need a stronger immune system, which isn't really, uh, I don't think a helpful way to think about it. I think of the immune system more like an orchestra. So if we were going to a symphony and we said, we want to hear the best symphony ever. And we just said, everybody play louder. It wouldn't sound very good. What we really want is for the violins to come in at the right time and to crescendo and decrescendo and the bass to provide its background beat and things to coordinate. So the immune system really works like that. So having a robust immune system means that the various cells and layers of our immunity coordinate with each other. And I think your word of resilience is really good. It, it, there's a, there's good handoffs, there's good, um, swelling of immunity when we need it and de-escalation when we need it. And everything kind of regains what what I often refer to as dynamic homeostasis or sort of this flexible balance. So with that in mind, you know, it's really not about just taking a bunch of stimulants to make our immune system stronger. It's about um, facilitating the ability for that very almost delicate balance to occur. So with that as a backdrop, underlying uh, that would be, you know, there are some fundamental lifestyle-based things which do really facilitate a good, healthy, dynamic immune response. And one is to remove impediments or remove kind of constant draws on our immune system. So that can come in the form of stress, um, any kind of chronic, unrelenting, or even a very acute stress, which sometimes we can't avoid, but that kind of stress really unravels that uh, immune kind of functionality that I spoke about in um, general terms. And uh, so stress and really paying attention to what the stressors are, are in our life and you know, can we remove some of the stressors? If we can't remove the stressors, how are we dealing with stress on a day-to-day basis? Do we have daily stress relieving 
behaviors, and we can go into some of those in a moment, that we actually do on a daily basis to help restore that balance. So stress is, I mean, I can't emphasize enough how critical and intimately tied stress is to immune dysfunction. Um, Another thing I think that I'm becoming much more sensitized to is the fact that our environment is um, can be quite challenging for our bodies and requires our bodies to kind of form this constant surveillance or defense. So if we think about all of the environmental toxins, which we're exposed to, we think about allergens, which have gone up exponentially. We think about more of us living in an urban environment where there's a lot more kind of foreign substances that we're encountering or even in rural environments with pesticide exposure and so forth. These things do, again, kind of erode on our immune defenses and they create this subclinical inflammatory state, which is very difficult for um, the immune system to coexist with. And so I think we have to pay attention to these external influences as well and do what we can to keep our environment as clean as possible, you know? So obviously a lot of that's not in our control, but we can control some things. We can control the kind of food we eat. We can control the cleaning products we use. We can control the type of water we drink. We can control um, to some extent, you know, the air in our home. So all these things can, I think, really unfetter a good, robust, resilient immune system. So stress, environmental toxin exposure. And then the third thing I would say is just our nutritional status. And um, our immune system is very sensitive to uh, nutrient deficiencies. So if we don't have sufficient levels of certain key nutrients, then we handicap our immune cells and their ability to orchestrate a good immune response. So that's kind of general terms, but I would say those are the three kind of key basic things to a good, healthy immune system. Yeah, no, I love that. Let's let's dive in a little bit further to each. Obviously, being a dietitian, I'm like, oh, let's go to the food and nutrients first. <laughs> um, but can you elaborate a little bit more on that, Dr. Ashler, with what foods are going to be supportive for our immune system and then what nutrients, one, you find are really lacking in people's diets that mm-hmm. can, you know, make their immune system, right? Like not that great defense or that great symphony it can be. Um, and which ones you find most people need to add in through their, you know, through their diet or through supplementation. Mm -hmm. So, um, I would say there's kind of two categories. One is I think that most people, well, actually it's really hard to generalize. So let me just say that you know, people are living in all sorts of different circumstances. Some have access to really high quality foods. Some people live in sort of food deserts. Some people um, don't have the financial resources to get a balanced diet. So I want to acknowledge that I can't really speak generally with that being said. Um, But what I can say is that we know that when people, for whatever reason, become deficient in trace minerals, which are not so much the calcium, magnesium, although those are important too, but we think about things like chromium and zinc and selenium and manganese, things that we don't hear about very often. Those actually are really important for cellular function and for immune function. So I think about mineral status in general as really key to good immune function. And 
you know, there are lots of vitamins. I mean, our immune cells are very energy um, hungry cells. So they uh, need to produce a lot of energy, which is dependent upon vitamins, particularly B vitamins. So B vitamins become very important for our immune function. And then I think most people are probably familiar with the role of vitamin C, which is an important way to keep some of our initial, what I often refer to as kind of the roving centuries of our immune cells, the neutrophils and the macrophages, it keeps these cells really good and active and and kind of on the alert. So vitamin C is important as well. And when we have an infection, our need for vitamin C goes up because these immune cells are working so hard. So that becomes an important nutrient. Um, so those are kind of, I dove right into sort of nutrients. Um, and uh, and actually one more I'll mention is essential fatty acids. There's um, omega-3 fatty acids in particular are known to serve an important role in not only supporting our immune cells and their ability to respond to infections, but also create, as we metabolize or break down these essential fatty acids, we create these things called pro-resolvins, which are really critical in reducing the inflammatory component of the immune response. And that's part of this orchestra bit. We need this robust, like kill the invader microbe or whatever. But if that kept going, we get really sick, symptomatic, we can get autoimmune disease. So we need to quell that immune response. And these pro-resolving mediators from essential fatty acids are really important in that. Um, And then the last thing I'll say are antioxidants. And uh, this is where diet, I think, is a really good way to get these antioxidants. We can supplement with these as well. But one of the reasons we want to eat a diet that has a lot of fresh colorful fruits and vegetables, especially, is because those are foods that are full of naturally occurring compounds, which provide antioxidant actions in our body, which again, serves to reduce that inflammation that I talked about, but is also very important for supporting immune, uh, sort of immune cell activity and reactivity. Do you find, Dr. Ashler, in terms of like, I think that's, you know, yeah, there's so many micronutrients. I mean, I'm sure like when you run people's, um, you know, nutrient panels, I feel like there's not one person that's going in that's coming out with flying colors, right? Mm-hmm. There's so many different ones. And a lot of it is because our diet just is not that varied. Or I find people are eating the same foods over and over again. Like they're used mm-hmm. to their typical breakfast, their typical lunch. And also it's it's one less thing they have to think about for the day. Like, what Mm -hmm. am I going to prepare? But I'm curious your thoughts or if you've seen in your practice, um, a connection with lack of protein and the immune system. Um, it's just something I come across a lot that people think they're getting enough protein. Um, so if you could just talk about like how protein supports your immune system or amino acids, how they support, Mm -hmm. um, your immune system, and the role they play. Yeah, it's a really good point. I think that, you know, there are some vulnerable populations to protein deficiency too. Young people, kids, and elderly are probably the most likely to be protein deficient. And when we don't have enough protein, we literally don't have enough fuel to fuel our immune system. On the flip side, um, I think that there are a lot of people that are also eating too much protein and over rely on protein. Um, 
maybe uh, even through processed type of foods, a lot of hamburgers and fast foods, which, you know, certainly are giving them enough protein, but at the expense of some of these other nutrients that we find in fruits and vegetables that are really mm -hmm. important along with the protein. And I actually want to go back to, to the nutrients. I neglected to mention vitamin D, but boy, that's really critical for immunity. It, you know, supports our immune cells reactivity. It's involved in our antiviral recognition and defense system. So getting vitamin D levels to sufficiency is really critical. And actually many people now are deficient or insufficient in vitamin D because we're kind of sunphobic. We use a lot of clothes and material on our skin that prevents us from making vitamin D from sunlight. And uh, we don't eat vitamin D rich foods as much. So yeah, that's a big one too. And do you find in your practice, if someone is extremely vitamin D deficient, which I, so many people are, and they don't know because unfortunately it's not commonly tested for, which I mm -hmm. wish would change. Um, how do you feel about, you know, do you prefer to kind of, when I say microdose of vitamin D, I mean, start at like a 2000 I use and go up from there, or how do you feel about doing like larger Mm -hmm. uh, mega doses with vitamin D. So, um, I feel very clear in my, based on my reading of research that <clears throat> the most effective way to manage vitamin D insufficiency is first of all, to test vitamin D, not just assume we know what people's levels are. Then using that as a guide, I think it's best to go high first. So you, you know, maybe might somebody might need up to 8,000 IUs of vitamin D on a daily basis for 10 days or two weeks to get to a sufficient level. Then we back down to a maintenance level and we retest the vitamin D to make sure that it's in the right range because it can vary seasonally and it can vary with our diet changes. So we need to make sure because we don't want excessive vitamin D more is not better of vitamin D. There's kind of a sweet spot. We don't fully know what that is, but we definitely, there's indications that when we get vitamin D levels too high, we can, that can be toxic to our kidneys and it can actually start to um, create some of the same imbalances that we see with vitamin D deficiency. So there's sort of this, what we call a U-shaped curve or a sweet spot for vitamin D. If you've listened to many of our expert guests, you know that we all tend to need extra support for our gut health. Whether that's taking a probiotic for optimal digestive and immune support, a digestive enzyme to optimize nutrient availability, or my personal favorite Nordic Naturals Nordic Flora prebiotic powder to support the beneficial probiotic bacteria in your gut and for a good source of fiber, there's gut health support for you, whatever your specific needs may be. And to make digestive and immune health more fun for children, Nordic Naturals offers probiotics in a pixie powder, gummy form, and a powder form for infants that can easily be mixed into room temperature food, formula, or milk. Head to nordic.com and use the code naturallywell15 for 15% off all Nordic Naturals digestive support products for adults, children, and infants. One of the most important things is getting tested for these nutrients, not just assuming you're low or right. assuming you're okay. We all need to know 
what our own baseline is. Everyone is different. Um, it, you know, your genetics play a part, your environment plays mm-hmm. a part, and there's so many factors. Um, so getting tested regularly too, especially like you said, kind of a before and an after treatment to see where your levels are, not just staying on that 8,000 IUs or, you know, mm-hmm. staying on a higher dose of, um, some nutrient is really important. I'm curious going back Dr. Ashler to environmental toxins, because I know this is for a lot of people still just kind of a question mark for them. Like uh-huh. where, where do I start with, um, eliminate, like reducing my toxic load. And how do I know if my, you know, I should have an air filtration system at home or a water filtration system at home. How do you educate your patients on reducing their toxic load? And like, where do they, where should they start? Well, I want to first say that I'm a big fan of the environmental working group, um, ewg.org. They have tremendous resources for people in this area. So they have um, ways that you can go and check your cleaning products to see how they're rated in terms of um, toxicity. You can check your personal care products. You They have a list, what they call the Dirty Dozen and the Clean 15, of foods that really are best organic and foods that are okay if they're conventionally grown based on their pesticide content. I mean, they just have so many resources. So I definitely recommend people use that nonprofit organization's resources because they're so invaluable. And um, I think, you know, if people are of the financial means to buy air purifiers and water purifiers, yes, do it. (laughs) Because those are the most common sources of daily intake of toxic compounds. So it makes sense. If you're spending a lot of time at home, you want your air to be clean. If you're drinking your water at home, you want to drink clean water. There are whole house water system purifying systems available, which you know filter all the water coming in, which I think is ideal. But of course, those are expensive too. So um, you know, if you're looking for really inexpensive ways to reduce toxic exposure, it can be as simple as putting really good doormats in front of your doors, uh, even removing shoes before you come in the house because a lot of toxins are in dust particles, which we carry into the house. Um, Adding house plants, which help us to detoxify the air. That's like kind of the best natural detoxifier and they're pretty and fun. Um, And then just being selective about the personal care products and the cleaning products that we use especially in places where we add heat to it. So dishwasher is a really good one because when we use dishwasher detergent and it gets hot, you know, you open up that dishwasher and this big billow of steam comes out. If that's um, full of synthetic chemicals, they go into your house. Um, So I think that, you know, selecting things like that are really important. And then making choices as well, if you're using microwave to reheat your food, read it in glass or ceramic. Don't use plastic, which will leach the plastic in. Think about what you're drinking water out of. Maybe go for a glass uh, water bottles instead of plastic. I mean, these kind of things can add up over time and really make a difference. Yeah, no, those are those are great options for people. And I always say to people like, I mean, right. You have your, and anyone listening, you know, who you are, you're like routine people who at the grocery store always just buy a big case of plastic water bottles. It's like, that's Mm -hmm. 
the water, you will save so much money just buying one reusable water bottle and filling that up rather than constantly having, I mean, I always think about too, like carrying, it's just a pain in the butt. Um, but buying those plastic water bottles and that's one easy way, like you said, that you can reduce that toxic load, but those are all great examples. Um, cause that is just a area that I feel like people feel a little lost in mm-hmm. or stumped and it's being talked about more, which is great, but they're like, where do I start? Because there's so many things I could do, but it's also, it's knowing like what, what fits your situation best. So if you find like you're a person who wears makeup every day and all the time, start there. Or if you do routinely clean your house all the time, start with your cleaning products. Mm -hmm. Um, there's just so many levels to it. And I love that you can really kind of enter in at any place. Um, and it doesn't always have to be a financial burden. So those are some great tips. I wanted to talk about sleep a little bit. Mm -hmm. What is sleep's role in our immune system and how important is it one that we get quality sleep and what does quality sleep look like? Right. Yeah, it's good. I forgot to mention sleep, but it's really important. So, um, so there are a couple of things I'll say about sleep. First of all, when we sleep, um, sleep is part of this, what we call the circadian rhythm of our body. So we are meant to sleep at night in the dark. And I know there's night shift workers and that's a whole nother topic, but generally speaking, we really are meant to sleep at night in the dark and then wake up and be active during the day in the light. And we actually have certain genes in our body called clock genes, which are under the influence of primarily two hormones in our body. One is melatonin and the other is cortisol. Melatonin is secreted at night in higher levels during the dark and activate certain of these genes. And then conversely, during the day, cortisol level is higher and that activates other genes and turns off kind of the night activated clock genes. And why that's important is that some of these clock genes are involved in really key, what I call housekeeping functions of the body. So they're involved in uh, restoring our immune kind of balance, if you will, or homeostasis. These clock genes influence what we call the redox potential in our cells, which is essentially the antioxidant capacity in our cell. Uh, these clock genes control something called autophagy, which is kind of cell cleanup, um, which is in, in turn involved in the inflammatory response. So we need good quality sleep in order to activate a lot of these housekeeping functions. And if these functions go unattended, then we will experience some detriment or decrease in our immune function, among other things. So we do need good quality sleep. Quality sleep, what is that? Um, We generally think, based on research, that human beings need between seven to nine hours of sleep every night. And what's not true is that healthy sleep means you go into bed within 15 minutes, you're you're out like a light and you don't wake up till your alarm wakes you up in the morning. Like that's kind of been idealized as what healthy sleep is. But in fact, as we cycle in and out of different phases of sleep, it's very normal to 
achieve these sort of light periods of wakefulness during the night. And that's okay as long as we kind of emerge through that cycle and we're sort of awake, but then we're still relaxed. We might think about some things or just lie there, do some breathing exercises, whatever, and then we can go right back into sleep. And that may happen a couple times during the night. And that's totally fine. And that is consistent with quality sleep. Um, so it doesn't have to be that you're out like a light and you sleep like a log the whole night through. That typically is a sign of being exhausted, actually, and um, perhaps indi- indicative of sleep deficiency sort of preceding that. But I think ultimately the most important thing to think about is do you feel rested when you get up? At, do you wake up feeling restored, rejuvenated, rested? And that would be an indication you're getting good quality sleep. Um, I'll just say one other thing about sleep, which is that the rate of something called sleep apnea is quite high. And that is uh, results from a number of things that can be, uh, you know, in large tonsils. It can be uh, people who have excess weight <clears throat> are more prone to it. People have allergies are more prone to it. But when you have sleep apnea, you decrease the amount of oxygen that you breathe in during sleep, and that has severe health consequences. And typically, people with sleep apnea don't wake particularly rested, and they often snore. So if you're told that you snore at night, you might want to get evaluated for sleep apnea. And if that's corrected, that can actually have a tremendously positive impact on health and, in fact, on immunity. Yeah, I know we are big... um... I don't know, Dr. Ausler, are you familiar with James Nestor's book, Breath? Mm-hmm. Okay, yes. So we had him on and then we just had um, Dr. Sebastian Lomas, who's a biological dentist. And b- both of our conversations were all about nose breathing, the benefits of nose mm-hmm. breathing over mm-hmm. mouth breathing and right, like the connection to sleep apnea, but also like restful qualities. I mean, the list goes on and on with the benefits but just in terms of like also feeling more rested um, when you wake up. And I love that you put like, that's really the good indicator of quality sleep because people do vary, right? Like some people, they may be on that seven hours or like that lower end and still feel great when they wake up and others, they kind of need closer to that nine and they mm-hmm. feel good. Um, And that kind of goes back to like, you know, listening to your body and taking in the messages it's sending you. Um, I feel like you probably validated so many people and they're like, oh, it's okay that I wake up occasionally. Yeah. Well, that's Um, important. I think it's really important because people get sort of set up for failure with Mm -hmm. the sleep industry, right? Which is a billions of dollars of, of, of stuff that we need to get good, solid sleep, like a log through the night kind of thing. And I think that, yes, that can happen. But again, I think it's really important that people you know, don't feel like they're failing at sleep because they're having some wakefulness. Yeah. And I think two things um, that people need to keep in mind that can hinder their sleep that they may not realize is alcohol and caffeine. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, trying to kind of stop your caffeine at the latest 2 p.m., but some research says by noon, and that kind of depends on like your own metabolism. And then alcohol is a big one. Like even just having your glass of wine before bed, right? Like, or after you put the kids to bed, Mm -hmm. it can have a larger impact than you realize. Um, And that's why it's kind of actually funny. It seems like that happy hour time is the best time to have like a drink. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but that's something I, you know, I find a lot of people are, they have good sleep hygiene everywhere, but maybe one of those areas, like having that afternoon coffee, um, or tea and, or having like that glass of wine and something that I feel like, I mean, I feel like I always talk about like the, the actual, the hug of something, but it's really like, we're just looking for like that hug in the afternoon or in the evening. And there's so many great like herbal tea options and other things you can do. But just know that if you feel like you've been trying to get good quality sleep and doing all the things, but you haven't really looked into your caffeine or alcohol intake, those are two I would suggest looking into. Yep. Good points. Definitely. Um, so I want to kind of wrap up a little bit because I know <laughs> there's a lot to it, but the stress immunity connection, mm-hmm. um, how are they intertwined? And just like how we want to build resiliency in our immunity, how can we build some resiliency in stress? And, you know, there's, um, stress from work, family, like all the things we typically think of, but then we were talking about toxic load and environmental stress as well. Uh, but how can we start to build that resiliency and kind of sever that connection a bit mm-hmm. or support support it rather than hinder it? Mm-hmm. So that, you know, the connection between stress and immune function is a little bit complex, but I can very much simplify it by saying that the hormones that we secrete when we're stressed are toxic to the immune cells and their ability to function in a regulated, efficient way. So when we, and when we're under chronic stress day in, day out, unrelenting stress that we don't resolve, the stress hormones stay high and eventually our immune system really suffers and it becomes very dysregulated. And there's actually a whole bunch of science on this. And so this connection is quite well established. Um, So, you know, I think that the, the key though to this is that it's that chronic high level of stress that doesn't get mitigated in any way. And so that we never reestablish our set point. So the key is, I think, having a daily, some daily techniques that we use, which can be everything from, you talk about James, Nestor and breath, you know, so breathing is one of the best ways to reset our stress response and doing some, even just a minute or not even, even just 30 seconds, like four deep mindful breaths in the midst of stress can completely change our physiology. And uh, Pema Chodron, who's a Buddhist nun, talks about gap breathing. So she's, you know, talks about finding the little gaps between things in your life and in those gaps, doing just a couple of mindful breaths. So I find that to be a very impactful practice. Um, And then of course, you know, we can take it a step further a big step further and engage in a mindfulness practice, which would be some form of meditation or sound healing or even art or music therapy, nature walks, something that really provides this very centering, calming, peaceful, resolving uh, experience for us. If we in if we have that on a regular basis, that does a couple of things. It's number one, it's a direct antidote to the stress that we're the frenetic, crazy. Oh my God, this is crazy! You know, making me nuts type of energy and experience that we're having. 
have this nice, calm, peaceful, restorative antidote. So it helps to balance us, but it also reminds us on a physiological, emotional, uh, and experiential level of what not being stressed feels like. And the more we remind ourselves of that, the easier it is to reclaim that in the midst of stress. And people who have mindfulness practices also typically don't get as stressed by things, or uh, maybe it takes a little longer, a little more for them to get stressed because they're so close to this de-stressed experience. So I think some kind of mindfulness practice, which may be meditation or guided imagery, and it could just be like some of these other experiences that I talked about. Um, and then honestly, I think that there's some physiological support available for people in the form of adaptogen herbs. These are uh, botanicals, which I know, honestly, given the amount of stress in today's world, I think almost everybody would benefit from. Uh, these are very unique. There's no other thing like these adaptogens. And these are essentially plants which fortify us and um, help our stress response system be more resilient. So it increases our resilience and our ability to handle stress. And there are many dozens of different plants under this category. These are things like um, American or Siberian ginseng or holy basil or ashwagandha or um, gosh, there's so many maca. These are I mean, many different examples of adaptogens. And, you know, obviously if people are unfamiliar with botanicals, consult with a naturopathic doctor or an herbalist or somebody who's familiar with these with these plants, but I've seen, and I've experienced myself, um, the incredible healing benefit of these plants. And it just allows people who are in just say a stressful job, they can't leave. It just gives them a little bit more equanimity in the face of that work, for example. So yeah, that would be another thing I would definitely recommend. Yeah, no, those are all good options. And I think the favorite thing or the thing that resonated the most with me that you said was just having that mindfulness practice or reminding yourself of like when you are calm and being able to kind of reach for that. I feel like again, may instill that behavior change in people to actually try a mindfulness practice rather than, well, you're really only de-stressed when you're in your mindfulness mm -hmm. practice. Like there is no benefit throughout the rest of the day. It's just that one time. Um, so I think that's a great, a great way to look at that. I'm going to, I'm going to use that with my clients. I think that's Amazing. Mm -hmm. So my one question was, and I, I I'm assuming it's very similar, but would you say a lot of the things we talked about would be this similar recommendations for children and trying to keep your children's immune systems activated and um that symphony, you know, you know, playing well? Yes. Um, so children for sure benefit from healthy food and healthy diet in the ways that we talked about. Um, uh, kids can be vitamin D deficient as well. So that benefits to test kids, uh, especially during cold and flu season, you know, kids are kind of in this very intensive, um, microbiologically shared lab called school every day. School, yeah, and, school and daycare. Oh my gosh. School and daycare, right? <laughs> so they need, um, so, you know, kids get sick, but actually getting sick isn't really a bad thing. It's just how do kids recover from their illness? Do they recover fairly efficiently? 
And can they withstand some minor infections or are they always getting sick all the time? Um, so, you know, it's not like we're trying to prevent people from ever getting sick. It's more like, can people respond to these microbes robustly and then quell the inflammation and infection and move on? And so I think with kids, you know, it's, um, really important that they get good rest. It's really important that they get daily exercise, they get fresh air, um, that they do get some exposure. You know, there's this whole idea that kids who are never, who, who have, you know, who don't have pets, who, uh, are using hand sanitizer all the time and, you know, never get exposed. They just don't really sort of exercise their immune system. So that can be a problem as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, one thing we didn't talk about that I think some people overlook too is mold exposure. Mm -hmm. And sometimes with kids too, I know even having like your humidifier in your kid's room you don't change the filter very often, or you don't realize that it's actually putting in so much humidity into their rooms. It can create, so it's just something to look forward to. If you find your kid isn't rebounding from sickness well, or your whole family's sick all the time. So the microbiome is actually really important for adequate immunity, critical. And it's not so, it could be about taking a probiotic, but really it's about maintaining microbial diversity which is supported by a diet that's high in fruits and vegetables and fiber and you know is certainly supported by taking in fermented foods like kefir or uh, olive oil or things like that but honestly if we can just keep our diet rich in fiber rich in fruits and vegetables get that microbiome really well fed that will over time totally support healthy immunity love that i know i mean i Fiber is another one that I feel like so underrated or where everyone thinks they're getting enough fiber yeah, and they're yeah. like nowhere near, I mean, <laughs> ideally I would say like about 35 grams a day and n- people aren't near it at all. So, yeah, so, for sure. yeah, I'm curious out of, you know, everything we talked about, is there anything we didn't talk about that you personally do as part of your you know, kind of health and wellness non-negotiables to support your immunity? Well, we didn't talk about exercise, but um, that's something I do on a daily basis. I feel very attached to my exercise regime. And I think that exercise is critical for optimal immunity as well. It's kind of interesting because there's like, like people who are ultra marathoners, for example, are actually more prone to getting colds and flus and various upper respiratory tract infections because they're kind of in a constantly stressed state from their ultra uh, whatever activity that they're doing. So too much may not be the best for our immune system. But on the other um, side of that, if people are sedentary and they don't exercise at all, their immune system is also not very in good shape. So I think that um, regular exercise is correlated with better efficiency in recognizing and clearing infections. Exercise is correlated with, for example, reduced risk of certain cancers, which can be related to immune function. And it's also improves mood. And when, when people are depressed, they also have lower immune system um, or lower immunity that's kind of well-established as well. So there's like all these different benefits of exercise. And I think it's really important. No, I'm, I'm glad you touched on that. I, it's true. And you have to find like your, 
your sweet spot where you're not putting too much stress on your body, but you're also putting enough that you're challenging yourself a bit too. Um, well, Dr. Asher, this has been so great. And I feel like you've given people so many good nuggets of wisdom on how to build resiliency, not only in their immune system, but also with stress. I loved all the tips you gave, especially for reducing our toxic load, um, and helping build that stress resiliency. So we love to end every episode with a little rapid fire Q and a for our listeners to get to know you better. So first thing that comes to mind, what is your favorite de-stressing practice or support tool? I think it's walking outdoors with my family. Love it. Uh, coffee or tea? Coffee. And how do you take it? I add some steamed organic half and half. Mm. Um, okay. Favorite home cooked meal. Favorite home. Okay. This is a total no brainer for me. Uh, it's this one pot meal, which is a combination of brown rice, uh, black beans, which unfortunately my intestines don't love, but I do, uh, <laughs> some kale and, um, then some spices, some other vegetables and all that's cooked up in kind of like a one pot, um, almost stir fry technique. Love it. Could eat it every that day. Sounds, in life. That sounds so good. I mean, and honestly, it sounds like, you know, that'd be a good thing to eat every day. Um, I don't know if your intestines would love it since you, yeah, said- <laughs> I'd probably get used but, to it after a while. Yeah, that is very true. Well, thank you so much. Where can people learn more about you, your research, um, how to possibly work with you? Sure. So I think the easiest place for people to get all of that in one website is Dr. Lease, D-R. L I S E dot net that has um, a page that links to my clinical practice. It also has information on my podcast, which is Five to Thrive Live, and uh, has information about me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Asher. This has been great. Thank you. My pleasure. This week's actionable step is to start implementing one of the strategies Dr. Alshar discussed to reduce your toxin exposure or toxin load. Whether that's switching out your plastic storage containers for glass ones, or switching to a cleaner dishwasher detergent, or taking Dr. Alshar's advice and browsing the environmental working group's list of clean beauty and household products and slowly switching things out. Whatever you choose, you're taking another step towards better health and feeling better. Thank you for listening to Naturally Well by Nordic Naturals. And remember, you can catch some of our episodes of the podcast on our Naturally Well YouTube channel. For something to do in between episodes, please follow me on Instagram at livewellwithkate, where I typically live on my stories, providing a variety of daily health and wellness tips. Naturally Well is hosted by myself, Kate Turner, and produced by Andrew Steven. If you have any questions, please send us an email at podcast at nordicnaturals.com, and we hope to answer your question on air. If you like this show, please tell a friend, share an episode, and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.